You're listening to special programming sponsored by Making Moves Life Coaching Services. The content of Veterans Affairs Plus does not reflect the views or opinions of Public Radio KUNV, the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, or the Board of Regents of the Nevada System of Higher Education. Good morning. This is Veterans Affairs Plus. I'm Dave Washington, your host. I'll introduce a few guests that we have shortly. I certainly want to give some announcements. And one of the things that I want to talk about real quickly is the loss of a Las Vegas legend. Melvin Stretch Washington recently passed away. He's a family member and uh, he was an outstanding individual in our community and just want to acknowledge his family and let them know how much we, we care for them and we'll be praying for God giving them strength to, to deal with this situation. And from what I understand, his services will be on July 9th at True Love Baptist Church at 11 a.m. We most recently had our family reunion down in Atlanta, Georgia. Talk about the humidity was jumping. It was. But certainly want to thank the committee of Whitney Rooks, Cherie Rooks-Peck, and Patron Wright. These young people did an outstanding job. We had about 50 members from around the country to attend that uh, exciting program that was, again, we've, we've been doing the Washington Family Reunion since 1989, and I haven't missed one. In fact, one of the things that occurs there, the oldest individual and the youngest will take a picture together. Well, guess who was the oldest one this year? It was me at 71, so uh, proud to be a family member. Also, uh, last month, Marsha and I celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary, so I uh, certainly want to thank all those who were there to share that celebration with us, and certainly our children who put that on, and uh, just want to say thank you, and we are grateful for our friends, and you know, sometimes people are with you for a number of seasons, and sometimes for just a season or so, but those who've been with us throughout that 50 years, we again appreciate your presence there. Once again, this is Veterans Affairs Plus on 91.5 Jazz and more. And I got a producer extraordinaire. He's an on-air personality. Catch him at 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. It's Kev and the Queen show, Monday through Friday. So with that, we're gonna, I'm going to introduce our first guest who's in studio. We also will have an in-studio, excuse me, he's a call-in, but in-studio we'll have uh, Ms. Krista Fales, and also uh, William Bill High, retired lieutenant with New York City Fire Department. However, to start out today, we're going to have Mr. Grady Hayes. Grady, please tell our listening audience a little bit about yourself to include what branch of service did you serve in? Well, good afternoon, and, and uh, belated uh, congratulations on the anniversary uh, and uh, the fact that you're elder, you're an elder now, uh, Chief Washington. It's always good to be elder. <laughs> right. um, I, I served in the United States Army, uh, 95 Bravo Military Police uh, in the investigation unit. Uh, I served for three years, uh, two and a half years overseas. Um, 
and uh, very proud of my service uh, there. And then also a graduate of the United, uh, University of Southern California with a degree in uh, business administration and a graduate degree from the University of Seattle in marketing and management. So, Grady, did you do your education, your formal college education, before or after you went into the service? Both. Uh, I, well, you know, I, I was, uh, I was uh, a recruit to play football at the University of Southern California. So I, I played my freshman and sophomore year there. And for personal reasons, uh, I, I left school and joined the Army. Uh, and then when I got out, I returned and, and uh, finished there at SC and then, then uh, got a chance to further, a little further at the uh, University of Seattle. Great. Look, I would be remiss if I didn't indicate that uh, Grady Hayes is a former commander of American Legion Post 10. And during his tenure there, they had a radio show and he had listened to me be a one of the oldest interns with uh, former Commissioner Lawrence Weekly and Miss Patricia Cunningham. And he asked me if I would co-host with him. So my doing this show, I have to give uh, Mr. Grady Hayes a little bit of credit for for getting me more involved in radio. So, Grady, tell us a little bit about something that you and I did during your tenure as as the commander, we talked to a local council person about uh, telemedicine, got no traction, and you also had brought up the housing. So give give us a, a status, if you will, particularly on the telemedicine, which, again, nothing really came of that. But I know you also kept the idea of the housing for veterans. What we wanted to do, and you and I discussed it very much, uh, one of the our biggest concerns was what we called the unappreciated veteran which is a Vietnam-era veteran. Uh, those who served in Vietnam, unlike today's veterans, were not treated as heroes when they came back. In fact, it was complete opposite. A lot of them were spat upon. Uh, they were called viral names because it was an unpopular war, and they took the brunt of that uh, unpopular war when they returned. They didn't receive the, the attention, the accolades, or any of the benefits that, that are given to the, uh, the veterans of today. So we wanted to focus on them because we know at that time uh, PTSD was not even uh, talked about uh, along with Agent Orange and a lot of the mental uh, problems that that era of veterans had and no one wanted to address those things. And then also culturally, we know that uh, mental illness is, uh, is, is a found upon illness in the community. A lot of times they don't want to admit it and that causes the problem because if you don't admit to an illness, there's no way to treat it. So we wanted to address a lot of those concerns, number one being the mental part of it and we wanted to provide telemedicine. But those veterans who could not go into a facility we wanted to provide uh, a, a facility in the west or historic west side area where they could go in, feel comfortable, uh, get peer counseling and deal with other veterans. Because a lot of veterans feel more comfortable dealing with uh, veterans who they think can relate to a lot of their problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you said, at that time, that wasn't very popular. We didn't get a lot of traction there, but it's something that I know you and I are both still working on. Right. And presently, uh, I'm the CEO of a, of a nonprofit, which is the National Veteran Housing Alliance. And basically what we're doing, and I was able to build five of these homes down in the lower ninth ward of, of, of New Orleans. And those people from that area know, who familiar with that area, know that that was the area that was uh, most affected with Katrina. That area was flooded probably right. more than any other ward in that area. So we partnered with a company called Boxable Homes, mm-hmm. which is located out in the Speedway area. And we provide homes there that, uh, that sustain winds up to 149 hours, or insect-proof, or fireproof, and are low low cost. I could build a three-bedroom home like that for about $90,000. And what I wanted to do here was basically the same thing to, 
to address not only just the, the housing problem or for homeless people, but also provide first-time buyer homes for veterans. So, and and uh, fee- well, let me interject something, and, and this is one of the, the motivations here. The suicide rate right now for veterans is almost 90%. Mm. The suicide rate for female veterans is 21%. So what we want to do is address some of, those, some of the concerns when it comes to the housing part of it and then provide uh, a lot of the services that are available to them for uh, like peer counseling and, and right. mental health uh, awareness. So we want to provide housing for them because a lot of times people feel more comfortable. They know every day they have a place to go to where right. they're not looking for a place to sleep every night. Absolutely. So we want to provide housing not only for homeless veterans, but first-time buyer veterans uh, where they could get affordable housing and also for uh, young, young families who wanted to start developing their family wealth. Mm-hmm. So we want to do that with this kind of a housing in the store West Side area. And, right. and we've been talking with, with Councilman Creer's office, uh, for some guidance and mm-hmm. some uh, support to to get the property necessary to put the housing in that area. Well, let me say this uh, as we close this segment. Look, this tell your friends that they can go online and and get a free app that they could. This particular radio program, uh, ninety one point five Jazz and More, can be listened to anywhere in the world. And I know that what you're doing is is so important. We need to get the word out, and I think. Again, tell your colleagues to, to pick this app up so they can check it out. Uh, uh, and we'll be on, on the air at 8.30 on Saturday. So please know that. And uh, we appreciate your closing remarks, my friend. Well, I just want to thank you uh, for all the work you've done. I, you know, I, I know a lot of people don't uh, know your history and, and know the contribution you made to, to the community. But I just want to acknowledge that and thank you for everything you and your wife have done. Uh, for the community, and also say that you've really improved since the days that we were on the radio before, so I want to <laughs> give you kudos for that. Oh, oh yeah. you still got jokes. Uh, Mr. Grady Hayes, former <laughs> commander of uh, American Legion Post 10, we thank you for your time and effort and certainly want to uh, give you kudos for doing the work in terms of trying to develop housing for, for our veterans. So thank you, sir. Thank you also, Chief Washington. Good morning once again. This is Veterans Affairs Plus on 91.5 Jazz and More. This is Dave Washington, your host. Our next guests are Krista Fales and Lieutenant Bill High, formerly with the New York City Fire Department. We're going to start with you, Krista. Mm -hmm. Please tell us where you're from. Yes. I'm Las Vegas, Nevada, born and raised native. You know, I didn't know that. I'm thinking that you... Coming here from somewhere else, to, nope. to be honest. No Las Vegas native. Okay. Yep. Eastside. And currently working for Clark County Fire. Yes, sir. I'm an engineer. I've been on for nine years. Um, and I was before that, I was actually a training instructor for a little bit mm-hmm. um, after firefighter. So I was firefighter, training instructor, and now I'm an engineer okay. and acting captain sometimes. Acting captain yes, sometimes. Sir. Great. Now, we certainly want to give you credit and an opportunity to speak about a program that you lead. It's an entry-level preparatory program yes, sir. for those who are wishing to become firefighters. So yes. give us a little feedback on that, if you would, okay. to our listening audience. Yes, sir. Um, so the Fire Prep Leadership Academy, FPLA for short, is intended to successfully test and prepare participants for entry-level positions in the fire service or identify other career paths in our community that they will be well-suited to serve. 
Um, we have a very rigorous curriculum, which challenges individuals both mentally and physically as they pursue a career in the fire service. Now, you mentioned before, like, the re- one of the reasons why we kind of um, offset it with a career path that mm-hmm. they, you know, would be suited for is because we've learned in the process of helping people that sometimes they don't fall into the fire service. Right. Sometimes they'll be, they'll fall into police, they'll be, you know, inspectors, but we want to, we want to give them the tools that they need to be successful in anything that they decide to pursue in their right. life. Yes. No, and I think that's excellent. As I mentioned off offline, uh, Larry Powell, he retired as assistant fire chief, he and I ran a program out of Zion Methodist, but we were specifically geared to push people toward the fire service because, of course, we didn't discriminate against anyone. All folks were welcome, Mm -hmm. but we were very interested in trying to get blacks onto our our department. And it's uh, very interesting how the dynamic has changed to some extent Mm -hmm. where you guys are opening up to various professions. But one thing is obvious to me that people gain confidence from going through your program. Yes, we, we like you mentioned, we accept all individuals, but we understand that there's specific challenges in mm-hmm. place for people of color and mm-hmm. especially women of color in the mm-hmm. fire service. Right. So um, not everybody needs the same things or requires the same things. Mm-hmm. So we make sure that we fill the gaps wherever they have, wherever they are with the individuals um, so that they can be successful. Absolutely. And also you mentioned offline was uh, Boy Scouts of America. Uh-huh. Yes, we are a post and explore post three eight one nine. So we are affiliated with the Boy Scouts of America. Um, that's been very helpful and instrumental in um, us having the ability to, um, inter- I want to say, interject ourselves mm-hmm. into the um, fire departments in the valley. Mm-hmm. Um, one unique thing about our our program is that we are um, we not necessarily are affiliated with, but all of the valley departments work with us. So right. North Las Vegas Fire, mm-hmm. Henderson Fire, LVFR, Las Vegas Fire and Rescue, and Clark County Fire Department. Um, they all we all work. We all train at their their training centers. We have individuals that volunteer with our program that are from every single fire department in the valley to include um, departments that are not in the valley because um, Lieutenant High, he also helps out. He's a retired as you mentioned lieutenant from um, New York. So we have um you know, retirees from all over the United States to come and give us their insight. And so the really cool thing, too, is that even though we we help individuals um, who have no idea about what it means to be a firefighter mm-hmm. or what it takes um, to be successful in this process, mm-hmm. uh, I myself am always learning from my elders because they come in with, you know, with with experience and wisdom about like how things operate in the fire right. service at every different level that I wouldn't have had I have mm-hmm. a, you know if I wasn't if we weren't all working together collaboratively with the Excellent. with the students. Yes. Now, who's eligible to participate in your program? There aren't. We don't really have any like limitations. Um, I would just because in the fire well, all the departments in the valley they don't have an age restriction, so mm-hmm. to speak. You just have to be eighteen years and older. Mm-hmm. But as an explorer program, we'll accept um, individuals fourteen and up, and that's just because some of the some of the work. Workouts that we do, some mm-hmm. of the level of things that we operate in, um, it, you kind of have to have a, a certain level of maturity. And plus, you can't mo- uh, most actually all fire departments require you to be EMT certified. Right. And so that process doesn't really start for most people in the Valley until 18. Okay. So we can help them mentally. We can help them with, um, you know, 
with some of the skill sets as far as how to carry themselves, mm-hmm. interview skills, oral boards, like oral board interview skills, right. um, giving them an idea about what some of the job duties are of mm-hmm. a firefighter to mm-hmm. give them an idea of what to expect um, prior to 18. But some of the things that you would need is like a, well, the bottom, bottom line is you need a, a driver's license, right. you need a college degree, mm-hmm. and to be 18 okay. for Clark County. Sure. Yes, sir. Well, thank you very much. And you mentioned... Lieutenant Bill High, yes, retiree, New York City Fire. So let's uh, get some insight from from Brother Bill. Bill, in fact, I was told that you were a veteran by your colleague uh, Captain Orlando Rice. So tell us about briefly your branch that you served in, and, and when did you serve? Yes, uh, Chief. Thank you for having me. <clears throat> first, I want to give you. First, I want to thank you for the, giving me the opportunity to speak on behalf of myself and those retirees that I represent. Uh, I'd just like to mention, before I get involved, also who came along with me is retired Fire Captain Robert Sanders uh, from the United States Navy, the first submariner that I ever met. Bob is sitting here in the, in the audience with us. I retired, I am, I am retired Lieutenant William Bill High, FDNY, 1962 to 1980. My fire, my United States Air Force career started when I was enrolled as an active Air Force reservist in 1954 during my senior high school year in Boston. Upon finishing the Air Force boot camp in 1955, the Air Force offered me an opportunity to go to OCS, Mm -hmm. which was the Officers Canada School, before there was an Air Force Academy. I knew nothing about the existence of the Tuskegee Airmen from World War II. If I did, my military career would have gone in a different direction. Upon entering my boot camp training, I requested to go to the Air Force Military Police School in, in my Air Force Military Police School training in California with my boot camp buddy, Ray. After a few months of intense military police training, I was on my way to Korea. The United States military was getting the hell out of Korea as fast as they could at that time. For the 10 days that we were in Korea, our job was 24-7 was to guard the perimeter of the air base against sabotage during the military withdrawal. We were sent to Japan following the withdrawal. For my next two years in Japan doing military policing, there were several race riots off base between white soldiers and black soldiers. I was involved in the policing action, which included guarding the Air Force fighter jets, stockade duty, and off-base policing. I was well-trained in Air Force policing, military policing. Bill, I, I want to stop you right there for, for this reason, because we have so much time, and I can see you're going to— you, you can tell you're a writer, man, because you're doing such a thorough job. you got all these sheets, but I don't want to spend all the time on it because I want to know, where were you born? I was born in Brooklyn, New York, and I finished my— So educa- you are a New Yorker? Yes. Okay. And I, I, my education was in Boston, Massachusetts. So where, where's your family from? My family is from originally from North Carolina and by way of Brooklyn, New York. Okay. New York by way of North Carolina, either way. All yeah. right. So during your fire service career, let's talk to the listening audience a little bit about your fire service career. Okay. Um, I know I threw you off a little bit, but what was the main positions? Or I, I, I trust that there were several that you, you held during your tenure. Yes. Uh, I first entered the 
fire department as a rookie in 1962. Okay. I was stationed to a very large fire station in Upper Manhattan, New York. It was a predominantly white area, and I really didn't fit in because I was kind of aggressive, and it was 1960s, and the riots were going on all across the country. Mm -hmm. I soon was transferred to Brooklyn, New York in my own hood. I became a firefighter, first-class firefighter, and eventually a truck, a ladder truck driver and tiller operator. I stayed in in that particular firehouse during the, the, the majority of the 1960s and well into the 1970s. In 1977, I got promoted to the rank of fire lieutenant. From there, I was transferred to another station in mid-Manhattan. At that time, I was on the list for the promotion of captain when I was, me and my crew was caught in a four-story building which collapsed. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I spent four, year, four, four months in the hospital after two operations, the fire department gave me a, a disability retirement. Upon leaving the fire, let me go back a little bit. Let me tell you a little bit what happened prior to that accident. In roughly about 1967, um, Dave Floyd, who was the president of the Vulcan Society, which is a black fraternity in the fire department, received a call from two black firemen in Hartford, Connecticut, complaining that they were victims of race, racism. Myself, Dave, and about five of us drove up to Hartford, Connecticut in 1957 to let the white firemen know that we had the back of those two brothers, and if anything was to happen to them, we would definitely be here on their behalf. Bill, that is a perfect segue because, again, we don't have a lot of time. Okay. You're going to be honored by the IABPFF, I'm told. Yes. Next month. Yes. Talk to us a little bit about that. As, as a result of that incident, uh, they came home, and, they, and the idea of forming International Association of Professional Black Firefighters mm -hmm. started. He and with several other black professional firefighters from other cities formed the organization. The organization then became what is known one of the largest international firefighters organization in the country, which was there for the protection of fi black firefighters around the country who were facing various forms of discrimination. The organization is now going into its 50th year, and there's only a handful of us that are still alive who was there on that original date in 1967. So you're one of the originators of the IBPFF? Yes. I am a lifetime member of the International Association of Black Professional wow. Firefighters. This is, this is history awesome. right here, y'all. This brother is one of the founders. I've, I've been, I'm a life member of that organization. I think it's absolutely essential that it stays around and we continue the work that's being done. Now, Bill, I want to move now because we don't have a lot of time. Once again, you're an, also an author. Tell us about uh, a book or so that you've written. Yes. Uh, I, I, I had a hard time understanding why it took me to reach my 75th birthday before <laughs> I started writing. And someone told me the reason why it took so long, because you didn't know enough about anything to write prior to that. <laughs> so, yes, I, I, I got involved writing my autobiography. And from there, it, it, it took off into other areas. Mm -hmm. I, I, I enjoy writing. I enjoy discovering who I am as a black person. My first book is called, my autobiography is called My Real Black Fire. Mm -hmm. It covers all of the racist incidents that happened in the 1960s, including the fire hoses that were put on the civilians in Mississippi and Alabama. My second book is about to go into uh, production. Mm -hmm. It's called The Birth of an Enslaved Nation. Mm. And that's has to talk about what happened from the time the first black 
people got off the ship in 1640 mm -hmm. up to 2022. And all the races, incidents that are not recorded in the history books. That's the reason why you see many people want to curtail the book based on critical black theory. Yeah, critical race theory. Critical that, race theory, a, yes. And a lot of people don't realize that came out of Harvard Law School. It was a law project, and they're just making a, a crazy deal out of it, man. It's just really telling the truth about what has occurred in our country. I want to come back to you, Krista, as we start to wind down the time. What can we do? What can the public do to assist you to ensure continued success of, of your program? And then I'll come back to you, Bill, for some closing remarks. Go ahead. Well, I think one of the, the, the primary things is just to um, have an understanding that people of all shades and colors and, you know, cultural backgrounds are welcome in the fire service, that mm -hmm. you should never feel like just because you don't see someone that looks like you, that there's not an opportunity for you in the fire service. Um, I would have never have even considered the fire service as a, as an occupation or a career if an individual hadn't come up to me and said, hey, have you ever considered the fire service as a career? Mm -hmm. It never even occurred to me. And it's it's been one of the most fulfilling things that I could do in my life. Um, not that being an educator wasn't, but... Um, this just allows me to help people in a different way or serve our community in a different way. So that's the one primary thing. Um, right. Another thing is that we're a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. um, we have an EIN number, Fire Prep Leadership Academy, um, 8617452980 EIN 86174-5298. Um, so if you'd like to contribute to um, – to us, we'd be able to provide greater opportunities for individuals. We were donated a um, an engine by North Las Vegas mm -hmm. um, Fire and Rescue, so maintaining that has its expenses. We sure. um, we do lots of community service. Mm -hmm. We try to have outings in the community for individuals just to bring some awareness mm -hmm. to what we do, allow individuals, young people, people of all ages, just to experience what it's like to be, you know, to what to, to work out like we work out in the mm -hmm. fire service, mm -hmm. the rigor. Um, we also do open houses at all, you know, for all of the fire departments. And, and so, like I said, there's, there's always more that you can do. Um, we also um, try to help people pay for their certifications for EMS or, you know, now they're starting to charge for tests. Um, so, you know, there's there's a fee to take the written test. There's a fee to take the CPAT, the <laughs> the um, physical agility test. So these things start adding up. And, and depending on what you're what you, where you are in your life, right. it can be it can be a hindrance to right. obtaining this job. Well, let me say this before we come back to you, Bill, for some closing remarks. During my tenure, you guys remember Sam Smith. Sam Smith yes, and I met with the Mayor Oscar Goodman, HR director at the time, Claudette Ennis, and we talked about um, the whole issue of EMT certification. I was, as a, as a steward of the public dollar, I'm a deputy chief, we got to protect the public money. So I was in agreement that you should have your EMT coming in. One cycle, I said, Sam, you're right, because Sam didn't agree with that. So I told Mayor Oscar Goodman, we got to meet again and discuss this. So he said, well, Chief, what do you think the solution is? The solution is allow people to take the test. That Generally, that the, um, the eligibility list is going to last anywhere from 18 to 24 months. You got time to go and acquire an EMT certification without putting up fifteen dollars to $2,000 prior to you knowing you that you got to test. Well, yes. 
we can't, the average person can't afford to go put up that kind of money and then for it, I might get a job. So when I left, that's the way it was. And now you're telling me that they've converted back to you well, must have it. Well, no. Well, it depends on the department. County, you don't have to. But, okay, good. Um, but with this, but it, but then it, it goes in, well, then it goes into the success that you have in the, in rookie school. So if you don't have it coming in, you got to get it while you're in rookie school or your probationary no year. Yeah. So the, so now you're looking at the, the, how successful are you going to be mm-hmm. when you have 15 things to worry about right. with the stress of rookie school? Right. So I would say, like you said, that's a great way to do it. But I would also say it's not just the money, it's the time. Yeah. You, you're an adult. You no have doubt. a family. You're taking care yes. of your responsibilities. That's time away from your family to right. get your into. At least it's, it's a part-time job to do that. Well, at, know, least, so, and, at least everybody yeah. isn't a requirement because that, that turns my stomach that everyone would be requiring that you have to have it going in when there's always that, that thought in the average person's mind, why would I go pay this money for might get a job? I might test high enough. Mr. Bill High, Lieutenant, give us some closing remarks on just in general uh, about what you're doing today as an author, et cetera, and the conclusion of your career and being honored next month. Thank you, sir. Uh, last week, myself and several other recruits from FPLA went down to the Black Firefighters Museum in Los Angeles. It was a fact-finding mission to see what is needed, what is required, and how we are able to build such a facility here in the Las Vegas area to, in order to maintain and keep the legacy of the Black Firefighters here in the Valley. We also would like to share that our facility that we intend to be will be a multi-purpose facility, not only exclusive to firefighters, but all to all black professional uh, people serving the city of Las Vegas and the Valley area. Uh, we know that Chief Dave Washington was among the first chiefs to be here in the Valley, and we would love to preserve his legacy in the facility when we get to have that such a facility. Thank you, Bill. As we prepare to close, we got one minute here. I would be remiss and probably get beat up because I've always acknowledged my family's birthdays and other family members. But next month or this month, I should say, David will turn 22, one of our middle grandsons. And also our son, I forget, I think he turns 50, Vernon Ray Washington. So happy birthday to my son and my grandson. Hey, you guys, it's been an honor to have you guys on the show today. And I think it's a wealth of knowledge that our that our listening audience will will receive from this. So thank you so very much. And once again, we'll be live and on the air.